I feel extremely sensitive tonight. I mean, I can feel my feelers just reaching out, reaching into that great vast fruitcake of existence and vibrating and tingling with just everything. Oh, do I feel sensitive? Oh. I can't believe I ate the whole thing. I can't believe I ate the whole thing. And so tonight, this vastly concerned medium of electronic expression takes time out in its busy workaday world to salute that exciting phenomena of these exciting months, the charge of the great herd of candidates. Yes, every four years at this time, like a four-year perennial, the candidates rise like a vast cloud of starlings in the sky. Each, all, and everyone, honest, sober, reliable, industrious, and totally concerned men. So we know, we know, do, 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 like do, 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 do. Oh, hooray, hooray for the candidates, each and every one of them. Oh, hooray for Hoover's Humphrey. He's been running for years and years. Hooray for George McGovern, so sober, industrious, and deeply concerned. Oh, hooray, hooray for Johnny Lindsay. Truly a fun, fun candidate. Hooray for old Mr. Muskie. He don't look like Lincoln, but they say he does, and that's enough. Oh, hooray for candidates. Hooray. Oh, viewing with alarm. Alarm. Oh, oh, oh. Always seeing everywhere there are bad omens everywhere. It is with deep reluctance that I take on the cudgel. It is with the foot on his hand, you will that I approach the electorate, that I say to the electorate, it is time now for all good men to get rid of their rotten bombs and heat. And I say with all deep humility, I will stand on my high record. For years and years and I have been for good things, motherhood and all the rest. Hooray for peace, hooray for peace. Elect me or else the this is going down the drain. Forget it, Western man stands at the And I will take up the flagatory at forward. That's good. That's very good. That's not bad. Yeah, it 
not bad. That ain't from Fiddler on the Roof. That was exciting, wasn't it? <laughs> Did I leave out your candidate? What happened? Did I leave your candidate out? Well, by the way, things are... If, for those of you who don't live in New York, I want to... I'm holding this up, put in my vast file of trivia. Trivia. The way it really was in our time. It is a telegram. Now, you know, I don't get many telegrams. It's kind of great to get a telegram, you know. I get a telegram, see? <laughs> it's from this guy that uh, he's... he's the, Actually, he's the editor of Car and Driver. You know, I write for Car and Driver. And it says, Gene... The telegram, see. It says, Gene, your switchboard... K-K-K-K-K-18Ks, four E's, five P's. <laughs> His telegram gets misspelled. It says, your switchboard keeps pulling the wire on me. We can't go on not meeting like this. Can I reach you at a pay telephone someplace? Signed, desperate, Bob. I wish one candidate would run on getting the phone straightened out. My God, there would be a candidate who would get some votes. Hooray for my bell. Hooray, hooray, hooray for them buzzes and them pops. Hooray, hooray for the mysterious voice that keeps popping up on the phone. Hooray, hooray, hooray for those sudden unexplained silences. Hooray for those just complete blanks. Complete blanks. The other day I picked up a phone and got a shot. Hooray, hooray for my bell. The other day the telephone operator says, I will return your dime. And I hear ding, 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 and $12 came out. Hooray, yeah, I'm ahead of the game. Oh, now, and I ain't telling you where that phone is. Every time I need a little scratch, I try to make a call from it. Today I'm now $30 in the green. Hooray for the telephone. Oh, hooray for Donna Beachy. Hooray for all the goodies that we got. I know a lady got chased out of her house with her electric paring knife the other day. Hooray for my bell. Hooray for Connets working all that stuff up in the air. Hooray for all the goodies. That we he got here in Fun City. Thank you, John. Quack, quack. Oh, hold, 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 hold it there. Oh, what a terrible piece of music. I heard blowing bubbles. Isn't that something I have? To, I get a telegram from a guy who says, I gotta get you on the phone. <laughs> no, I'm not exaggerating. There it is. Just came in there, see. Uh, listen, we have, uh, before we go any further here, this other little culture things that we have to bring in here. I got a note here from an airline's pilot. Now, you know, you know, you, you, you I mean, I'm talking about the guys, the official guys up in the front end, you know, the business end, the, up in the office of a 707, you know, you the official guys there. Well, this, uh, this uh, pilot, he's a chief pilot, see, he, he, you know, captain, see, so he's just flying in, he says, we're coming in on an instrument approach to Dayton, Ohio, the other night. And he said, everything's going cool, you know. He says, everything's under control. He's got, it, uh, he's got it made, you know. He says, well, all of a sudden, out of the blue, my co-pilot sitting next to me says, uh, say, Herb, have you ever heard Gene Shepard play the juice harp? I said, no, I haven't. 
<laughs> while they're on, on an instrument approach coming at the Dayton, see? And the other guy, the co-pilot, says, you ought to hear him. He said, uh, you know, he really plays that thing, man. He's really groovy. At which point, uh, this pilot says, I never knew there was anybody else to play the Jews harp. And so they talked about this all the way down on the glide slope. He says, and after the touchdown, they rolled out. They made their they made their little things that they do in the office. They signed their logs. And then a couple of hours later, he's on his way back east. He says, my God, we're coming in there. He says, we're flying along there. He says, my co-pilot says, let's pick him up. He says, they happen to be up there when uh, the show was on the air. So we turned it in. He says, and the first thing that we hear, he says, uh, in between all the Omnis and all the ILSs, he says, the first thing we hear is the dulcet, gentle sound of Shepard playing the Jewish harp. He says, it filled the cabin of our 707 with such sweet, such ineffable music. He said that ever since that time now, he said, half the pilots on our line, as they quietly sit there and everything's under control, they got it wrapped and the plane is flying along there on autopilot. He says, once in a while, we pick on our Jews' harps and just... He said, we sit there in the front of the 707 and we just... Plunk away there. He says, we often plunk back and forth on our two-way radio. He says, Shepard, when you're, you... He says, I understand you're a pilot. He says, when you fly, he says, why don't you just check into a tower someday instead of, you know, giving them your registration number. You know, this is N73JS calling... Uh, Wilmington Tower, over. He said, why don't you just come on, you know. He said, they know who that is. They'd know right away. Thank you, Herb. <laughs> I just thought you'd... Oh, no. Hey, listen, we, uh, this is, uh, you know, it's midweek here time. Right here. Hey, did you hear about the guy in Hamden? You know where Hamden is. Connecticut. Okay, Connecticut. A Bridgeport man who mailed in a payment for a parking ticket in the form of a check made out and this is what his check says. The Hampton idiots found that the local, local officials didn't agree with him. <laughs> you know, he had a check, so he says that Hampton idiots. He was arrested on a charge of harassment. And uh, so they went down and laid another one on him, another 50 bucks, which he attempted to make out again to the Hampton idiots. So uh, it's kind of cool now for a while there in, in the Hampton. Hamden, they ain't saying much, but uh, you know you can't you can't really you can't really uh, you know you can't guess what's going to happen. You know, there's a guy in Italy the other day was found. Uh, he called the cops, and then they came rushing over, and they 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 and it happened in Turin. You know, you ever ever Turin, Italy? Well, that's what that big dish is named after. You know, soup Turin, uh, and uh, they yeah, it's, everything has a connotation. Everything, no matter who or what. A name does not exist in a vacuum. Vacuum. Uh, the, for example, kohlrabi. Where do you think that name came from? Well, there is no such thing as a kohlrabi. Well, I'll tell you where it came from. There was a man in in, uh, in Baltimore. This was Baltimore named Augustus Kohlrabi. He was a vegetable uh, distributor in the late 19th century and early 20th centuries. And he had a whole great big warehouse full of white turnips, which he, you know, couldn't get rid of. It was a bad year for white turnips. Nobody cared, and he had overbought on white turnips. So with that, he he put a put an ad in the paper that he had these, these rare imported German vegetables, and people came down, and they said, what are these? It's a kohlrabi. Named it after himself. It's a white turnip. And ever since that time, 
the, the kohlrabi, which does not exist, the great kohlrabi myth. It's a, it's a hoax. There's no, no such thing as a kohlrabi. You know, you've heard of it, haven't you heard? The kohlrabi? You've never heard of it? Have you ever heard of that vegetable? You've lived a rather sheltered life, Herb. I kind of admire you. Have you ever heard of mashed potatoes? You know what that is? Well, you know that stuff they put next to your next to your uh, peas when you go down to the down to the uh, H&H. Being a true engineer, you probably eat most of the time at H&H, right? Don't you? Oh, I like it, yeah, yeah. But uh, seriously, though, the, the kohlrabi myth is an interesting one, and it's persisted in Western culture. And I'll guarantee you that right now there are probably 500,000 people who are within the sound of my voice who seriously believe there is such a thing as a kohlrabi, and they will tell you that their mother used to fix it. Or their grandmother had it when they would visit them at the grandmother's house. Or that they have a cookbook that tells about kohlrabi, but nobody says, I had kohlrabi tonight. That's part of the myth. And uh, you uh, speak, that is, well, now, now, wait a minute, I don't want you to think, this is WOR, New York, I don't want you to think that there's a connection, friends. We have a little note here, uh, speaking of great food from Mandarin House. Starting this Saturday, the 12th of February, the Mandarin House in the village is celebrating the Chinese New Year with a new informal dinner, and it's great. This is the year to rat, you know. All you can eat for just five ninety-five. a fantastic, delectable Mandarin feast. Start with a superb soup, such as hot and sour, or velvet chicken winter melon. Then help yourself to four fabulous main courses, such as shredded spiced beef, Sichuan fish-flavored pork, and sweet and sour chicken. And the high point of, the, of this feast is one of the world's truly great delicacies, Peking duck, just the way it was done in old Peking. And ordinarily, by the way, Peking duck must be ordered days in advance, and it's very expensive. But anyone ordering the New Year's dinner... We'll have a serving. The price is just five ninety-five. If you've never had Peking duck, Dad, you ain't had the real thing. That's every night at the Mandarin House in the village, starting this Saturday, the twelfth of February, through Sunday, the twenty-seventh. We're celebrating New Year's. The Mandarin House in the village. It's at one thirty-three West Thirteenth Street, between Sixth and Seventh Avenues. That's one thirty-three West Thirteenth Street. You know that's a historic place. I'm curious what happened there, among other things, historically that in the Mandarin house one night, uh, a long time ago, they were just new there. They had just opened. And uh, the rumor was out that there was great food down there. This is not part of a commercial. I'm just telling you something totally off the record, that there was rumors around, you know, down in the village. I was living in the village at the time, as I still am. And there were rumors among a lot of people who were very poor at the time that there was a great restaurant where the prices were right and the food was incredible. And it was the Mandarin house. Well, the people that I'm talking about who were very poor at the time was all of us, the whole crowd, that was working on the Village Voice at the time. Well, the Village Voice was having trouble even buying new paper clips. In fact, uh, the, the staff in the Village Voice would go sneaking up into the post office and steal paper clips and stuff to keep the paper going. And so one night... Uh, we went down to the Mandarin house, Ed Fancher and Jerry Talmer, Dan Wolf, and I believe Dan List was there. I'm not sure whether Danny was there that night. Anyway, just the guys who were trying to get this thing going, we were writing for the paper and everything. We went down to the Mandarin house because uh, the food was supposed to be great and it was cheap. We sat around a table there in the Mandarin house. It just seems like yesterday, and Emily Quo came over and we were being served. 
And uh, the Village Voice was totally non-commercial. There were no ads or anything in it at the time. And uh, we're sitting there debating around that table whether or not the Village Voice was to continue. Whether or not it was to continue. And in the total euphoria of a fantastic bowl of wonton soup done the way they do it, and in the exquisite ecstasy of, uh, I remember somebody ordered a fish, a great big striped bass, sea bass, you know, not a striped bass, a sea bass, great big sea bass done with bean curd. Have you ever had that? We're sitting there, and, and the meal was so great, and we felt so good, and uh, our spirits were rising so rapidly. You know, a great meal can do that to you, that that night we decided, Ed Fancher, who was the publisher, really, decided, well, what the hell, we'll try to keep it together one more month. <laughs> and that happened at the uh, at the Mandarin House. That's the one that I'm talking about on 13th Street between 6th and 7th Avenues. So, you know, at the places begin to have connotations for you. You know, there's certain places here in town when you drive around, you're in a cab or you're walking around, and uh, it's funny how you're, you're, when you live in an urban world, now there's two kinds of urban people. There's the kind of urban person who lives in one neighborhood and has lived in that neighborhood for all their life, pretty much, and they stay in that block. And uh, that's a very special type. Then there's the other kind who has uh, moved like some kind of a worm over the entire city and for one brief period in your life, one part of the city will be total. Will be your total life. You know, you know, you know every little crook and cranny in it. Uh, you'll know, you know, you know how the guy looks at the cleaners. You know what time the guy opens up down at the deli, and uh, you know whether or not the salami is any good. And you know all these little subtle things. You even get to know the dogs in the neighborhood. You know which ones will do it on your foot and. Which ones you can kick and get away with, you know, <laughs> and, and it just gets to be. Then all of a sudden, you move, you go, for whatever reasons. In the city, it's uh, very subtle, and sometimes it's precipitous, like they're knocking a block down, and uh, bam, that happened to me once. The whole block's gone, and uh, you go. Well, the next thing you know, you're in another part of the town, and the other part of the town, almost that you were in and totally enveloped your life, ceases to exist. You know, it just like it's wiped out completely. And the new place that you're in, which is a little strange at first, very rapidly becomes as familiar and totally a part of your existence as the one before it. Well, if you live in a city long enough and you do that enough, you will have traveled in many, many different circles. And there there are about eight or nine neighborhoods in, in New York City that at one point were so completely familiar to me that... Uh, yeah, it's just like you know you could sleepwalk, and you know every every inch of it, and you know the people, or at least you know them by sight. You don't necessarily know the names, and so you 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 when you drive through the city or in a cab, you're often going through places that are your old neighborhoods, like, and it's funny how they become very quickly alien. Once you leave the neighborhood and you're gone a couple of months, even as short as that, that old neighborhood is completely meaningless. You don't even have any sense of involvement in it at all. None at all. In fact, uh, it looks as blank and as unfamiliar as any of the other neighborhoods where you've never lived. <laughs> and and then, then there are neighborhoods that begin to have a curious uh, uh, personal connotation. I knew one guy who half of the town of New York he couldn't even drive in without having a trauma. 
he couldn't. And there were certain areas he just went in great big circles around him in a cab. It cost him like forty dollars a day taking cabs to go around certain circles. That if if he if he went through the street, he would have a trauma. Uh, it involved girls that throw him out, and you know. <laughs> and uh, of course, of course, there's a lot of uh, strange, sudden nightmare scenes that happen. Uh, that 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 uh, that. Uh, sure, it always, I've always felt that underneath all of us there's this, there's this raging, uh, uh, it's, it's almost like uh, King Kong. I think that's why everybody likes King Kong, because they recognize something that's lurking in them. And uh, I remember one night, uh, this is the kind of thing that makes you traumatized about a neighborhood. I remember one night in a place where I was living out in Cincinnati, and one night this engineer and myself, we, we used to go out late at night after I'd finished the work and the show, and I was going to school at the time, and one night we went into this, we went into this this diner. It was right in the neighborhood where I was living, saying I'd go in this diner all the time. And we were in the diner, and we're sitting there. It's 1 o'clock in the morning, and uh, we're having eggs, and scrambled eggs after the show. And all of a sudden, a guy comes down, sits down at the, a couple of guys actually, come, comes down, sits down at the counter there. And uh, the next thing I know, uh, and I'm, I'm paying no attention to anything. The jukebox is going, I'm eating the eggs, and I'm sitting there drinking a the coffee. And I hear something, and, the, and my friend next to me, who was a pretty big guy, this engineer, had been a chief in the Navy, I uh, saw this guy on the other side of him that just walked in. He just, just, I don't know what he did it for, just without any explanation. We're just sitting there. What do you do when this happens? The guy reached over, and he grabbed the mustard. There was a mustard pot there. He just reached over in front of my friend. We're, we're, we're just doing nothing. We're sitting there eating. He reaches across and grabs the mustard, and then without any, without, without even saying a word, he just takes the top of the mustard off. He unscrews it, and he just dumps it on my buddy's eggs. Just goes like that. Clop, 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 clop. He screws the top back on, lays the mustard thing down. <laughs> All right, now what do you do at this point? So my buddy, he just looks up, you know, and he says, All right, what was that about? At which point the guy looks him right in the eye and says, You want to make something of it, buddy? Now you've got an interesting situation. And almost instantly, the guy behind the counter, he sees trouble coming up, see? <laughs> so he reaches down and he under the counter and he brings out this chunk of what looked like rubber pipe. And he hauls it up like this. He says, All right, which one of you guys is going to give me trouble first? My friend Bob is just sitting there. He says, what do you mean give you trouble? I'm not doing anything. I'm sitting here, and this clown pours the mustard on my eggs. And with that, the guy looks him right in the eye and says, you're a liar. He says, I didn't put that. You're out of your mind. I didn't put no mustard on your eggs. Here we're sitting. So my friend Bob says, well, look, bring me another plate of eggs. He says, this clown here poured mustard on my eggs. Look at how can I eat the eggs? And by now, about five people are watching uh, you know, looking out of the booth there, looking like this, see? That's so the guy behind the counter says, Look, buddy, he says, you give me trouble? He says, you eat the eggs. He says, none of my problem. You put the mustard. You don't expect another plate of eggs free, do you? You pay buy some eggs? All right, you want to order new eggs? So he sat there for a minute, at which point my friend Bob just stood up. Here I am. All, uh, it just, just, all of this is snowballing. He just stood up, and without even so much as saying goodbye, yes, sir, good night, he suddenly, his hand reached out like a snake. He
he grabbed this guy who was the mustard porter, just grabbed him by the back of the collar, lifted him up, and, and, and just suddenly yanked him right off the stools. He goes, mm, like that. He yanked him. This guy's fork flies up like that. <laughs> yanked him backward off the stool, dragged him just right out the door. It was a diner, so he just dragged him right out the door. And they get outside the door, and this guy says, Get your hands off me. And with that, my friend Bobby just took him by the collar. So he's got him by the collar now, and he shook him like a doll. He goes, This guy's wearing a bow tie. It was a nutty scene. He's got a bow tie, and it was the first time I ever saw one of these bow ties with a clips on it. So you actually got to wear a clip bow tie. And the clip bow tie flies off. And he says, he says, you get me eggs? He says, you're going to buy me another plate of eggs? He says, or I'm going to shake your teeth right down to your liver. And the entire, the entire diner is real quiet. He comes back into the diner, and he's got the guy by the back of the neck. Just, he says, uh, he wants to order me some eggs. <laughs> and the guy behind the counter, he just looks out, he puts the... He puts the pipe underneath the counter again, and he says to the guy who was being held by the collar, he says, uh, what kind of eggs do you want? Give them uh, two scramble light, light, two scramble light. It's okay, thank you. Two scramble light, Heine. Bring up two scramble light. Uh, you want any toast? Uh, uh, rye toast. I get two rye toast. Two scramble light, two right toes coming right up, Heine. The jukebox started to play. We just sat there and waited for our eggs. One of those brief, exciting moments. Never mentioned again. The next night, we came into the diner, sat down, had our scrambled eggs. Guy behind the counter with a rubber hose said nothing. The jukebox played. Nobody said a word. A couple of nights later, we're sitting there eating our eggs. In comes the same guy, the must, you know, the mustard man. He sits down. He orders his usual flapjacks. And he looks over and says, how are you, guys? My friend Bob says, how are you? Hanging in there, right? And the guy says, yeah, you know, kind of hot, right? And Bob says, yeah, what are you going to do, you know? Hang in there, Dad. It was never again mentioned. That's the inexplicable. It's like many things. Speaking of the inexplicable, is it true that we have an announcement here on behalf of Jersey culture? This is Jacques D'Amboise of the New York City Ballet. Usually, the ballet is at Lincoln Center, but this March, I am taking a trip. A short one, just across the river to Bergen County, New Jersey, where a most exciting arts festival is taking place. It's called Festival 70, and it is sponsored by the North Jersey Cultural Council and the Bergen Community College. The festival is presenting a focus on dance, and Melissa Hayden and myself will be performing with other ballet stars on March 17th and on April 3rd. There's also Jose Greco, the repertory dancers of New Jersey, Isaac Perlman, the violinist, Pee Wee Irwin, the jazz trumpeter, and choral music from London and Hamburg. Festival 70 runs from March 17th to April 16th. For tickets and information, write the North Jersey Cultural Council 144 Main Street in Hackensack, or you can phone area code 201-487-2565. Gee, that was exciting, Jersey culture. It's very exciting. We did it, ding, did it, ding, in the shadow of the flagship. 
arc rears its sylvan head. Hey, uh, you know, speaking of... Uh, well, it's... it's I'll, I'll, I just want to know something here. This is uh, one of those, uh, you know... It's a rheumatative night. Oh, yes. Did you like my salute to the candidates? just want to clear that here with the front office. You did. Did I leave out any of your favorite candidates? Gee, we forgot Birch Bay. Well, he's, he's, he's pulled out of the race, right? Yeah. I don't know. There's some guy from Iowa running. <laughs> is he is he still running? I don't know. doesn't matter. That's all. Huh? Hartke. Oh, yes. Well, it's hard to rhyme him with McGovern. It's not easy. Oh, Hartke's got plenty of Hartke. Yeah, we could have done that pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> March forward, Hartke. Yeah. But, uh, you know, speaking of, of uh, you know, this moments of uh, revelation there, I, uh, at that, about that time, I went through a strange period. You know, everybody goes through these. Uh, do, you, do you ever go through food periods when you, when you find yourself eating a certain thing? Whatever happened up here for a while at the station, everybody went on a blimpy kick for a while. And uh, I don't know what they're on now. They seem to be eating tobacco or something. I can't figure it out. It's very difficult to know what engineers eat. They strange. Uh, uh, it's uh, <laughs> it is. They, they they do. They have their own little thing going there. And uh, I was going through at the time in that that diner. See, I've lived a lot of my life in diners. I bet I bet Jackie Kennedy's never been in a diner. A real. I mean a real working diner. I don't mean a camp type diner. I mean a real working diner. You know, where guys with leather jackets come in and pour ketchup, you know, on the top of your head just because you're looking mean. You know, I'm I just uh, curious whether she's ever been in one. But uh, I've spent a lot of my life in diners and second-rate hotels and and uh, bus stations in Wheeling, West Virginia. You know, the whole stuff, you know, the, the real thing. If you think Merle Haggard can sing about that stuff, friend, let me tell you about one bad night I had in Kentucky. But uh, where I lived at one time, <laughs> so so no, it's all part of the part of the mystique. But I was going through that 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 period there. I was like working eighteen hours a day, trying to do a job, go to school. I was feeling like I had stubble all over my face all the time, and I had one suit. Now uh, that suit, I mean, I, I I'm not a suit wearer, but they demanded that I wear a suit at this place I was working, so I had to wear a suit, and I had gotten this suit. At, uh, well, it doesn't matter where I got it, but it cost me $24. And it was made out of out of Kleenex that was dyed brown. It was like fake, fake tweed. And, uh, and one night, uh, coming home from the from the job, I thought, well, I'm going to save some money. I'm going to walk. Well, I got caught in a fantastic rain with my $24 suit. And I was really the first guy to ever actually wear in public uh, what could be called male hot pants. That suit... That suit, uh, you, you wouldn't believe anything could, could shrink so quick. In fact, that suit was shrinking. I could see it moving up my leg. And, and uh, yeah, and my, my sleeves, they were wet, see, and I could see my sleeve actually moving up towards my elbow. I told, you know, I finally had this short-sleeved suit that came up right just below my elbow, and the pants stopped just above my knee. It was up above my knee. And, uh, and uh, that night... I started something, which I, I uh, still to this day, I, uh, I, I haven't gone returned to it, but I was on a kick at that time. And that kick was, I would eat a bowl of cereal every night. I don't know why I liked that stuff. All of a sudden, I just got a thing on this cereal. You know, they say that the, that the animal, man, 
is far more primal than he knows, that he is driven by deep instincts, and that uh, they have been, you know, pregnant ladies will all of a sudden start eating paint off the wall or lead pencils or something because they need certain calcium. They'll eat the starch when they're fixing something. You know, they'll do this. And this is all part of the primal creature crying out for some some fugitive food that you haven't been getting, right? Well, suddenly I found myself drawn to eating this cereal every night. I would go to this place and I'd get mad when he didn't have it. Like he would say, we only got Wheaties tonight. And I'd really get bucked. Or he'd say, uh, Rice Krispies, that's all I got tonight. Oh, I want to kill him. See, Now, what was it that I was eating? Well, I'll bet there isn't one of you that can tell me the name of the cereal. I'll give you the slogan. It's shot from guns. That's right. This stuff was shot from guns. What is the, what is the cereal that's shot from guns? Well, I would... And, and of course, I was, you know, I was working... At, uh, I had about $3 a week to spend on, you know, total uh, luxury things like eating. Uh, so uh, at that time, at that time, I would, I, <laughs> I had, there was method in my madness. He would say, uh, I'd say, I want some of that stuff that's shot from guns. And he'd say, okay, coming right up. And he had these little boxes that you rip off the top and you could actually pour the milk and, and the sugar in it, you know, eat it out of the box. It was one of those kind of diners. They didn't even give you a bowl. See? So he gives me the box. <laughs> and he would, he would, he would just shove this, this, uh, this cardboard container of, of half and half milk, you know, it's half and half. And he would just shove it. They didn't have it in a, even in a, uh, a pitcher. He just shoved the container at me. He said, hey, you want a milk? I said, yeah. And uh, he'd just shove it at me. Well, I would fill it up with this milk, see. Now, remember, I'm working on about $3 a week for food, see. So uh, I, would, I would fill this thing up with the milk, and then I would very carefully eat the cereal, see. But I would eat it down to about a half of it. Then I would fill it up again with the milk, see. At which point, then I would eat about half of what's left in the cereal. Now, I'm, that means that I've still got a quarter of the cereal left, at which point I would fill it up again with the milk. Well, I, I, I worked it so that every night when I came in there, since I was only working on $3 a week, with one box of this cereal, which was shot from guns, which was not very expensive, you know, 25 cents or something for the box, I could also drink an entire quart bottle of half and half. <laughs> Until, of course, the inevitable time when he got wise. At which he said, what is it? I give you a whole quart. What are you doing? Are you drinking that stuff? I'd say, no, I just like, uh, I like uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of half and half on my cereal that's shot from guns. It's a look, he said, what, that stuff is, uh, three boxes of cereal is worth more, what are you talking about? I love, how much do you think this stuff costs? I'd say, okay, I, I didn't, you know, I just like a lot of milk on it. He'd say, all right, he says, okay. At that point, he started giving me these little tiny bottles and these little things that are about the size of golf balls. He'd fill one up and give it to me, see. Well, then I stopped going to that one, to that diner, see. And, and uh, I, I started to go down to another one called the Avon Diner, which was just down the street, where they had also the cereal shop from Guns. And, uh, <laughs> and so uh, the second night I'm down there, I'm eating the cereal. And, and with that, the guy, the new guy now behind the counter, he says to me, he says, Hey, he said, you're that guy that drinks all half and half, didn't you? Well, what do you mean? I hadn't even done it yet, seeing this point. I says, what, what, what do you mean? I look very innocent. What? Me? I just... Are you sure you got the right guy? Said, yeah, I said, you're the guy. Yeah, I know you. He said, don't, uh, you know, don't try any funny stuff. I know who you are. You're the guy that drinks all the half and half. He says, here. <laughs> and he took a little cup, filled it up, and gave it to me. <laughs> so you see there's an underground among short order cooks. And they, oh, yes, it's a very tight underground. Would you give me some cheap guitar music, Herb, please?
It's a very important moment here. We've just received a letter from the head of a philosophy department of a major university. He says, Dear Mr. Shepard, I understand that there is a password connected with your program. A password. He said, Would you please send my return mail to me what the password is? The back of my hand to you, Dean. Send you the password. Is there anybody out there who can give me the password tonight? No, just one. Just one person. I, I noticed that not one person either knew the serial that shot from guns. Am I the only one? No, it was not the cereal that they used to eat at the TM Bar Ranch. That's another cereal entirely. But uh, who knows the password out there? I'm just going to wait. I'm not going to continue. Very sensitive tonight. I told you my 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 ganglia are reaching out there, gangling and feeling a great sense of compassion for Jersey culture, which we have just been extolling. Give me the password. One person. Did they get I got the right one? No. Did he give it to you? All right. Now, wait a minute. Hold it here. Just a minute. Let's hear that password. Excelsior, you fat... All right. Let's hear it once again. Excelsior, you fathead. Thank you very much. Oh, God. It's good to hear that there's at least a few real people out there. Did you hear that? And, of course, what is the countersign? When you hear that password belted out at you, you just look the guy right in the eye and say, Seltzer bottle, you slob. And you walk your separate ways. You never look back. Now you want to know where that where that strange password comes from? The shades of night were falling fast, as through an alpine village passed a youth who bore mid snow and ice a banner with a strange device. Excelsior. His brow was sad. His eye beneath flashed like a falchion from its seat, and like a silver clarion rung the accents of that unknown tongue. Excelsior! In happy homes he saw the light of household fires gleam warm and bright. Above the spectral glaciers shone, and from his lips escaped a groan. Excelsior. Try not to pass, the old man said. Dark lowers the tempest overhead. The roaring torrent is deep and wide. And loud that chlorian voice replied, Excelsior! Oh, stay, the maiden said, and rest thy weary head upon this breast. A tear stood in his bright blue eye, but still he answered with a sigh, Excelsior! Beware the pine tree's withered branch. Beware the awful avalanche. This was the peasant's last good night. A voice replied far up the height, Excelsior! At break of day, as heavenward the pious monks of St. Bernard uttered the oft-repeated prayer, a voice cried through the startled air, Excelsior! A traveler by the faithful hound, half buried in the snow, was found. Half buried by the snow, still grasping in his hand of ice, that banner with the strange device. Excelsior. There in the twilight, cold and gray, lifeless but beautiful he lay. And from the sky, serene and far, a voice fell like a falling star. 
Excelsior. There now, you see where that comes from? <laughs> yeah, I'll give you a brass figure, friend, if you'll tell me who wrote that. Very enigmatic piece. Strange and enigmatic thing. But, uh, you know, I, I sometimes I have a feeling, of course, being a 20th century man, we all got the same feeling that uh, that uh, underneath all of it, uh, we all feel like uh, we're the only ones, you know, that we're the only ones that feel and see and understand. You ever, have, you ever, have you ever really seriously thought how the world must look through somebody else's eyes? Have you really wondered about that? What, what, what kind of color they see? Whether the, whether the world looks the same to them physically? And, uh, and, and can you imagine how it would be to be somebody else that you know, just somebody, maybe just somebody you casually know, looking at you through their eyes? <laughs> it's a... Uh, it's just, uh, you know, it's just, just the sort of thing, really, that makes you clutch a strange banner with a device that says Excelsior as you clamber up the icy slopes, reaching forever, reaching and grasping eternally forever at that, at that shifting cloud of reason, that chimera that seems to just drift out of your reach each time you grasp for it, and it moves further and further away. Excelsior. see those two mysterious, sullen eyes of that chick across the table from you. That mysterious look in the eye. I suspect that all men feel this. That there's a strange mystery about the way women look in their eyes. I wonder whether, yeah, of course they must. But then again, as you hold aloft that banner that says Excelsior, you order another bowl of the cereal that's shot from guns. You know, there was a rumor... There was a rumor around a neighborhood when I was a kid about that cereal. You know what the rumor was? Well, there was a there was an old soldier's home. Not far. That's right. Not far from where we were living. You know, an old soldier. It's an old soldier's home on it. And it was a rumor that a lot of the workmen who had worked in the plant where they shot this stuff from guns year after year after ten or fifteen years working that plant were retired as shell shock veterans that, uh, you know, were driven out of their bird by shell shock, working in the cereal plant, making a cereal that's shot from guns. And they would put them in this old soldier's home, there to sit and rock their days away, dreaming of Ralston, dreaming of silent cereals like uh, cream of wheat, silent cereals like mother's rolled oats. So uh, be of good cheer. It's going to work out, old friend. It's going to work out. And you know the thing that, when all is said and done, when you look at life just swirling on by, you know, and you sit on the edge of the sack there, and you look out into the middle distance out there where the lights are glowing into the Venetian blinds, and the air conditioning sits there gathering dust, you just can't help but say to yourself, repeating it over and over and over again, I can't believe I hate the whole thing. I can't believe I ate the whole thing. You just keep saying it over. Just swallowing it up like a great big, unbelievable shot of total vitamin juice. Life itself. Oh, W 